This is Suno India Production. You can now listen to all our episodes on our Android and iPhone app. Download it now. Eighteen months and counting. Russia's full-blown invasion of Ukraine continues with no political resolution in sight to the war. With the conflict prolonged and the battlefield unknown, what is the physical and economic cost of this war for Russia and Ukraine, Euro and beyond? Is there any challenge to President Putin, or has he actually emerged stronger after that attempted coup first and the subsequent death? of Prigozhin and the mercenary group Wagner's top brass. What is the mood of the civil society in Russia and Ukraine? Why did Vladimir Putin decide to not come for the G20 summit meet being hosted by strategic partner and friend India in New Delhi? And how is the Russia-China partnership unfolding in the wake of this war? These are some of the issues that we will talk about today. Hi everyone, you've tuned in to episode 14 of the Foreign Policy Podcast Beyond Nation and State on Suno India. I'm your host and independent journalist Smita Sharma. You can listen in to all the episodes of this podcast on the Suno India app as well as the Apple and the Spotify podcasts and you can watch the video on YouTube at Smita Sharma Journalist. And on this episode of Beyond Nation and State I am joined by Alexander Gabuev he is the director of Carnegie Russia Eurasia Center which is based in Berlin uh, he's also a senior advisor at the Albright Stonebridge group the ASG he has been contributing commentary and analysis to a wide range of publications including the Financial Times the Wall Street Journal as well as the Economist with his continued focus on russian foreign policy and of course the war which has been ongoing is known as sasha to friends and he's on twitter as alex gabuev thank you so much alexander for joining me here on this episode from berlin pleasure being with you if i could start first by asking you because you're currently also leading a team of analysts who were a part of the carnegie moscow center and this was supposed to closed uh you know closed down by the kremlin in early 2022 as the war broke out uh how difficult is it for analysts like you today to keep track of what is happening within russia on the ground on the ground you mean in berlin you know inside russia to get the information from there um i think it's increasingly challenging uh we see that the system doesn't want to be understood by the outsiders and by insiders as well people are increasingly cautious and on their guard when discussing things even internally in Moscow people i know who are working for the government banks they don't companies usually when they meet socially and go to the restaurants leave their phones in their cars don't take any wearable devices that can be recorded or have some special cases that could suppress the signal it's a pretty familiar set of course with the step up in technology uh that we witnessed during the soviet times where people were really very quiet about discussing sensitive political issues so yes it, getting information out is increasingly challenging the benefit is that we have platitude of data coming out of russia because of the internet you can go online and check retail prices you can always call 
some of the restaurants and see whether there are waiting lines. You have so much data pouring on you. And the problem is, of course, to be equipped with tools to analyze it and also to stay cold-blooded, objective, neutral, trying to analyze what you see, being intellectually honest to admit what we don't have a chance to know, and putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Uh, So it's hard, but I think that it's still possible to get a relatively accurate picture of what's going on inside Russia. And how challenging was it, you know, when the Carnegie, in fact, Moscow Center had to close down operations because it had been working for the past three decades doing some excellent research analysis for someone like you uh, who says it as it ought to be said uh, personally and, you know, as a group, how difficult was it to shift the operations? Leaving a home is obviously not easy and uh, the level of our discomfort, both uh, emotional and uh, material, should be put in per- uh, comparative perspective. Uh, it pales in comparison to what the Ukrainian colleagues and Ukrainians in general have to go through. So I think that we are fine with that regard. We're safe. Uh, Carnegie Endowment took very good care of of us, and uh, we're happy to have this uh, new center established in Berlin as a new intellectual home. And I think that the importance of our mission is very much there. We cannot do our work inside Russia, and both as citizens and individuals, we disagree with what Russia does to Ukraine. I think that it's very unnecessary, immoral, and also a big strategic mistake for Russian national interests going forward. Uh, I think that it's very hard to withdraw from the moral and emotional dimension, and one shouldn't do it. There are multiple links that are connecting us to Ukraine. Uh, We have friends and relatives there. For example, my mother was born in Ukraine, but it's just an illustration that many Russians have this and uh, starting to bomb cities and kill Ukrainian citizens is just immoral. But at the same time, I think that there are multiple downsides for Russia itself and for the world. You need as a patriot, which I am, for example, to talk about this. You don't have the opportunity to do that in Russia uh, without facing a risk to be in prison. And there are very few voices that are still in Russia who have the intellectual courage and honesty to talk about that. One of them is uh, my colleague, Andrei Kolesnikov, who is designated as a foreign agent and needs to be very careful uh, as well going forward. But I think that as a team, we can only continue our mission outside of Russia. And we are very grateful Uh, that Berlin can be this new intellectual home for us while continue to do our important work. And of course, we are grateful to see you safe and, uh, you know, for you to be sharing these very, very important insights at such crucial times. Uh, Coming to the war now, Alexander, it's been ongoing. There doesn't seem to be any resolution in sight. Uh, We saw a press release recently from the Kremlin, which announced that President Putin will not be able to make it to the G20 summit in New Delhi, physically, in person. Of course, Mr. Lavrov will be in New Delhi. Uh, But they also said that they are preparing for special military ops. Now, what is the nature of these ops that we are talking about? Where does the Russian offensive stand at this point in time? Special military operation is a code word for war. 
the Russian official propaganda in Soviet times after World War II was built on a myth that the Soviet Union is a peace-loving nation and that our foreign policy is designed to prevent the war. So when Russia obviously started a full-scale invention that comes on top of annexation of Crimea and launching war in Donbass back in 2014, uh, it cannot be designed as a war. We cannot start war. It's a special military operation. And even the use of word war in Russia can be criminalized ad hoc, although Putin occasionally uses that. And of course, nothing happens to him. Uh, I think that we saw that the Russian plan A for a blitzkrieg, taking Ukraine very swiftly using an overwhelming air power and just looking at the metrics and comparing the Russian conventional army to Ukrainian army, take this country in two months, establish a puppet government and really have a small rump state in the west of Ukraine that's populated by the parts of Ukrainians that the Russians don't like, those people who are viewed in Russia as uh, diehard Ukrainian patriots who speak this language and hate Russia, but everybody else is Putin's view, can be re-educated and brought back under Russia control, either formally, and we saw Russia's annexation of Ukrainian territory last fall, or through a Moscow-friendly puppet government. That didn't happen, uh, luckily, thanks to courage of Ukrainian defendants, their skill, and increasing amount of support that the West is providing. So now Russia is in a plan B. I think that this plan B is built on proposition that in a long conflict, Russia is better equipped to not necessarily win Ukraine, but to make Ukraine an unlivable, destroyed country that's depopulated with decimated economy, decimated armed forces, not part of NATO and EU, and basically a wasted no man's land between the West and Russia. And so far, Putin is building on this plan. Offensive operation don't benefit the advancing side or come at a very high cost, as we see through this Ukrainian counteroffensive. Russia also tried to do an offensive in winter, and the results were not spectacular at all. So I think Russia for now banks on sitting on these defense lines in the south of Ukraine, do some offensive operations to pull Ukrainian reserves off this major axis of advance in the east of the country, and then wait for winter and wait for Western support to dwindle and for resolve of Ukrainian defenders to dwindle. I don't think that this plan uh, will be successful, but really there are so many moving pieces and uh, so much really depends on the amount of the help that West is able to provide. But do you see this as a prolonged conflict, which will also eventually now be limited basically to being seen as Europe's problem, Europe's war, and Afghanistan on Europe's doorstep or in Iraq within Europe. How do you see this in terms of the next three, four years? Uh, do you see any resolution in sight earlier than that? Mm, it's war. It's contingent, as my Carnegie colleague Mike Kaufman likes to say, and is unpredictable. And finally, I don't pretend to be a military expert. But based on what I see and based on analysis of military colleagues I read, I think that the Chances for a prolonged war are very much there. Uh, both sides are equipped with resources to continue. And neither side at this point wants to abandon uh, the war effort and sit down and talk. We need to see that the Ukrainian 
definition of victory and anything short of victory is unacceptable to the Ukrainian society and Ukrainian armed forces is based on basically three pillars. One is restoration of 1991 borders, including Crimea, so the internationally recognized sovereign territory of Ukraine. Two is reparations, so Russia should pay for the damage, compensate the victims and uh, finance reconstruction of Ukraine. And three is accountability for war criminal on the Russian side, including the senior political leadership that committed uh, crime of aggression and gave these unlawful orders. So short of that, anything else is unacceptable. And Ukraine is ready to talk once the first condition is met. So Russia fully withdraws its forces from all of the occupied territories, including Ukraine. On the Russian side, the demands are that Ukraine and the international community should recognize all of the annexations, not only annexation of Crimea in 2014, but the four other major regions of Ukraine. So totally, it's about 20% of Ukrainian territory that Russia annexed illegally last fall in September and now considers part of its territory. So that's the starting point. And from that, Russia also seeks Ukraine's neutrality and Ukraine's demilitarization, so certain caps to be put on Ukrainian military. We see that these two uh, positions are very, very far apart. And so far, nothing is able to bridge this gap. As long as this is the case, and I think that both countries have their own domestic setups. Uh, Ukraine is a vibrant democracy. Of course, it's martial law, and the flow of information is much more uh, centralized. But nevertheless, Ukrainian society, at least at this point, appears to be united at this goal. And nobody wants to abandon part of Ukrainian territory for very understandable reasons in order to sit down and talk with the Russians. And there is also zero trust in whatever you can agree with the Russians. The expectation is that Russia will use the operational pause to rebuild its army and come back to conquer the rest of Ukraine. And on the Russian side, the expectation is that, yeah, for now, Ukraine is fighting, but then give it another year or two, and then probably the population will be dissolutioned. The West will also be dissolutioned, will reduce support gradually, and then Russia will be in a favorable position. Without anything here changing, uh, we don't have any building blocks for a fundamental resolution of the conflict. And I think so far at this point, we don't have any material for diplomatic effort around the ceasefire. So war is likely to continue into the next year at least. But, you know, while the Ukrainians may be united in their goal of the outcome of this war, at least a perceptible one, if so, uh, are there any cracks in that are appearing when it comes to questioning the leadership of Zelensky? There are those critiques who would say that he has actually led Ukrainian people down a rosy path, that he himself has been led down a rosy path by the US-led West with all the promise of NATO dangling. Uh, how, how do you read the mood within Ukraine when it comes to people and their trust in Zelensky's leadership? I'm not uh, inside Ukraine and I'm not a Ukraine expert, but uh, based on the discussions I follow and discuss it also with Ukrainians, uh, I think that there is an internal consensus in the society that at the time of war, all of the major debate around the quality of the leadership or the political course should not happen. The country should stay united 
in front of the enemy, being Putin's Russia, and also to project a signal to friends of Ukraine in the West that the country is united, the society is behind the leadership, and there are no cracks, so the West should continue its support and internal fights will not derail the Ukrainian defense effort. I think that at this point, uh, it's largely true. That's the way uh, it works at this point. Uh, I think that we start to see some minor cracks. Uh, there is There are documented evidence of corruption. There are documented evidence of inefficiency of use of resources. President Zelensky has just uh, sacked his defense minister, Oleksiy Reznikov, and has uh, proposed another candidate uh, for this position. So we see that there are some shifts. But we cannot say that there are like really serious cracks that will undermine the effort of this Ukrainian leadership to continue the war effort, at least not at this point. I think a crucial milestone will be whether Ukraine will be able to hold presidential election next year. And there are parliamentary elections due this fall, which are most likely to be postponed because of the um martial law. Uh, there are also local elections that need to be held next year and presidential election. There is a discussion uh, within Ukraine and between Ukraine and its Western friends whether it's possible at all to hold uh, an election where the country is at war, Russia is deliberately targeting civilian infrastructure. You every now and then receive news about Russian bombarding a school building and usually like voting stations are in schools, so how much you can guarantee safety for this uh, election going into next year is a question, and I don't think that we have an answer yet. But to answer your question broadly, I think that the consensus in the Ukrainian society stays. We don't know what will happen next year because, again, there are too many moving pieces here. And before I come to the question of the leadership in Russia, challenges, if any, to President Putin, I do want to ask you because, you know, you did mention that there is a lot of information out there on the Internet coming in. Uh, there is also state propaganda from both Russia and Ukraine. There is a lot of misinformation and disinformation. How challenging is it for you to be able to sift through all of these information that is coming in on the Internet? It is challenging, of course, but I think that... Uh... I come from a journalistic background, and before that, my academic training was in history, including ancient history of China. So you need to compare various sources, be very methodical, and uh, find evidence for your analytical hypothesis. Uh, so I think that we are trained to do that, and uh, so far, I'm very proud of the effort of uh, my team, uh, I think that the analysis uh, Carnegie Russia Eurasia Center in Berlin provides is really unparalleled. But there are also so many good people uh, in the field globally who are really very knowledgeable and uh, help to cut through the propaganda narratives. Like there is the poisonous narrative of the Kremlin propaganda, but obviously there are psyops uh, on the Ukrainian side. It's a country at war. It needs to uh, attack the Russian morale and public mood. It needs to keep the spirits up in the Ukrainian society. And it also needs to inspire and encourage uh, Western supporters that are so crucial for Ukrainian defense efforts. So nothing wrong with that. But you also need to try to arrive at the picture where things stand. And I think that uh, so far, the intellectual community is doing a pretty decent job. 
Okay, now coming to the question of President Putin, and before I talk about the entire Prigozhin episode and the political challenges to him, we spoke about the you know the situation as far as the Ukrainian society is concerned. From Russian society, where initially at the early days of the invasion, we did see Russians take to the streets to protest, and we heard news reports of them being rounded up, being tortured. At the moment, is there any whimper of a civil society protest within Russia? We don't see any major protest. Russia is a repressed society with a lot of resources going to the machine of suppression. I think that uh, part of the longevity of Putin's regime is not only delivering economic prosperity compared to the Trumaloist period of 1990s with collapse of the Soviet Union, and that's a combination of Putin's policies and high commodity prices, of course. Uh, but the other pillar is really resources invested into this political machine of repression. And I think that this machine uh, is run by very brutal, but also smart people. They are uh, perfect in demonstrative small-scale violence against the most brave and outspoken critics of the regime. They are happy to uh, provide platforms for various Telegram channels and other social media that are still remain in order for people to see uh, that protest has a price and put a price tag of questioning the logic of the government. That's where the society remains repressed and atomized. That was the case before the war. Russians were both apathic and re uh, repressed. The largest protest... Uh, in Russia after collapse of the Soviet Union and all of these massive demonstrations in 1991 that contributed to collapse of the Soviet Union. The largest demonstrations on Putin watch were in Moscow in 2011-2012 after the stolen uh, parliamentary election. And the maximum estimate for people showing up to protest in Moscow, and that was the largest nationwide protest, was about 130,000 people. That's for a city with a daytime population of 17 or 18 million. That's not a lot. That's not sufficient to really challenge the government. Uh, with start of the war, I think maximum estimate for people protesting in Moscow or in major cities was no more than 2,000 people at the street. At the same time, every day we see small examples of uh, individual bravery. There are thousands of administrative cases for people posting something online, uh, defamating the Russian army, which means in normal language, talking to fellow citizens about the war crimes that Russia commits in Ukraine, laying flowers to statues of Ukrainian cultural figures like Taras Shevchenko or Lesya Ukrainka, like the famous Ukrainian poets that are still there in Russia, thanks to Soviet legacy. So all of this happens but it is invisible uh, due to the large social apathy in Russia compared to kind of the swath of people which are silently going. The course that Mr. Putin is chartering, uh, this acts of bravery are barely visible. And unfortunately, they are not sufficient to really change the trajectory of this war or where Russia is going. So when it comes to, of course, the political challenge to him, and A, just try and explain to our audience of what really played out in that coup d'etat by Prigozhin, the Wagner group, of course, uh, you know, and then subsequently, of course, the death of Prigozhin, the killing of Prigozhin in that chopper crash itself. What really happened in that attempted coup? Because there were a lot of theories that perhaps it had weakened Mr. Putin's position. 
Does he stand weakened any bit today? I don't think that Mr. Putin is weakened as a result of the precaution affair at this point. Uh, it's too early to judge, but I don't think that uh, this uh, mutiny, and I would call it mutiny, not coup d'etat, uh, has produced any significant cracks within the Russian elite that can threaten Mr. Putin's grip on the armed forces or on power. Maybe they started, but they are too small at this point for analysts like myself and my colleagues to see them, really. Um, it is a mutiny. It was not an attempt to take power and depose Mr. Putin because Mr. Prigozhin is a very interesting creature. Uh, Wagner Group was created by the Russian state and funded by the Russian state as a, a tool for plausible deniability to help Russian geopolitical agenda in places like Syria, in eastern Ukraine, where Russia wanted to deny its involvement in uh, the war effort, or in Africa, while at the same time, there is an opportunity to line up pockets for people like Mr. Prigozhin or for his creators in the Russian government. So there is a mix where uh, Russia on paper is a state that consists of large bureaucratic bodies, state-owned companies. And at the same time, while these large organizations are indeed ministries or uh, energy companies, sustainable banks, there are also uh, mechanisms for redistribution of property and uh, lining up pockets of senior uh, people in the Russian elite who are in charge of those efforts. So Wagner definitely is such a mechanism. It's as proven to be indispensable during the most miserable days of Russian uh, campaign and war effort in Ukraine last year, when the professional army was shredded uh, in the first month of the war effort, thanks to courage and skill of Ukrainian defenders, but also thanks to uh, very questionable uh, use of force by the Russian commanders. And uh, Wagner, with its trained mercenaries and also with ability to recruit people in prisons, arm them, train them, and send them for uh, combat missions really proved indispensable. Mr. Prigozhin had received a lot of resources, money, uh, arms, and also he maintained a small media empire inside Russia. So he thought that he has become so important and so indispensable that he can dictate to Mr. Putin his uh, choices of personnel, Minister of Defense, General Chief of Staff. And when the a rivaling faction, so the top brass of the Russian military, Defense Minister Sergei Shaigu and uh, General Chief of Staff uh, Valery Gerasimov, thought that Prigozhin is threatening them and developed a plan of folding Wagner into the regular armed forces by July 1st, where Wagner mercenaries were ought to sign a contract with the Russian military. That's where Prigozhin revolted and wanted to really think about it as a uh, as a strike by truck drivers, which demand pay raise or want to certain uh, working conditions to be improved. Uh, but in case of Russia, there were no truck drivers. There were armed uh, mercenaries with a lot of uh, experience and a lot of brutality uh, waged against uh, the state structures. So the mutiny itself got resolved uh, through a deal uh, struck by the Kremlin and Mr. Prigozhin. We still don't know a lot of details of what exactly was agreed and how the terms sounded. And then uh, two months were spent by the Kremlin to pick up control over Wagner Empire, both in Russia 
and outside of Russia, where the Ministry of Defense and the Military Intelligence Directorate, the famous GRU, uh, was a parallel structure picking up parts of Prigozhin's empire elsewhere. And then Prigozhin was eliminated. We don't know whether Mr. Putin gave an order or somebody in the system gave an order. Lack of transparency about investigation suggests that it's not just a failure of uh, Embraer Fartajet and its uh, Embraer jet, uh, and uh, most likely it is um, an attack uh, on Mr. Prigozhin that brought him down. Uh, so a lot of layers of uh, secrecy at which level the order to eliminate him and the top brass of Wagner was given. But nevertheless, as a result, Mr. Putin stands uh, at least as strong as uh, we've seen him before. But is there a little more clarity on what happens with the Wagner Group itself? You said, of course, that the control was taken over. But will it still be operating as a mercenary, non-state group with the state blessings in Africa, in elsewhere? These are men who have been leaped, you know, who have been heaped with praises by President Putin himself, saying that these are brothers in arms who have been fighting for the country. So will the mercenary army be merged with the Russian army? What happens to the Wagner Group? Based on what we know, bulk of Wagner fighters who were based in Russia uh, signed contracts with the Ministry of Defense and were really folded and incorporated into regular units. Some people left for Belarus with Prigozhin. Now they are commanded by uh, a guy who is loyal to the Kremlin and with whom the government struck a deal. Uh, We don't see any evidence of mutiny or uh, ability to change the authority and turn the arms against Russian regular units. That's not happening. Uh, Most likely, uh, this uh, part of Wagner will be fully incorporated into the Russian army and redistributed across it. Uh, As for people who stay outside, I think elimination of uh, Prigozhin, his military commander, Dmitry Utkin, and the chief person who was running the finance and logistics will provide a huge disruption. Uh, the Russian Ministry of Defense is busy to uh, pick up the remnants of the empire. Most likely a lot of logistical um, and financial operations will be disrupted. And it's not only the kind of core business of Wagner providing training, protection or fighting, which the normal private military companies usually don't do. But also Prigozhin had interest in uh, gold mining uh, and various other Uh, natural resources extraction in Africa. So I think that the fate of this uh, assets remains unclear, but I think that over time, some of that will fall apart. Something of that will be picked up by Russian states and by similar structures run by the Kremlin itself. Alexander, what is your assessment, your team's assessment of what are the death numbers that we are talking about today? Because, of course, you know, there there seems to be a lot of uh, conflicting numbers that keep coming out. So the casualty figures for Russia itself. We don't do the body count, and I think that we mostly rely on the on the figures that uh, people uh, publish. Um, I think that uh, Media Zone and other Russian media that really try to verify the death toll put the number of killed in action as over fifty thousand people, uh, and they admit that the number must be uh, much higher, but uh, there is no corroboration for this evidence. So I think that we would stay uh, in this territory. We are talking about tens of thousands of Russian men uh, killed in action. And I think that the casualties on the Ukrainian side are also very well guarded. Uh, 
secret uh, for all the good reasons. Uh, so the uh, aggregated figures provided by the U.S. government, I think they're more or less reliable and give you an indication of where we say where we stay. In terms of the economic cost of war, Mr. Putin came to power with that promise of building a strong financial, economical powerhouse of Russia in the post-Soviet world. There is a military industrial machine that is still well oiled. There is those sale of import, you know, of gas, uh, oil, of weapons. But can Russia afford to go on with this war for the next three, four years, given all these sanctions that it also faces? I think that the short answer to your question is yes, Russia can afford the war effort with the current level of uh, intensity. Uh, and there are several explanations to that. The Western sanctions came as a shock to the Russian economy and to the global economy. But Russia managed to build uh, reserves. Part of that has been frozen by the West, but part of that uh, was still available to the Russian government. We're talking ballpark about 300 billion uh, US dollars. And then Russia also earned a windfall uh, last year because of very high commodity prices and the ability to export oil and gas to Europe still. Uh, Russian oil and gas industry have partially adapted, particularly oil, which is uh, much more flexible and uh, found new markets, including in India. Uh, And uh, the cash flow for the military machine uh, is still there. Uh, it's reduced compared to last year. I think that uh, the last year was really abnormal because imports have crashed uh, and exports were still very high. So you saw that reflected in the exchange rate of the ruble. The ruble was very strong. Uh, this year, this anomaly starts uh, to be corrected and we see the new normalcy of the Russian economy. So imports are picking up again, including uh, imports of dual-use technology, chips, everything that what Russian military-industrial complex needs to create more deadly weapons. Uh, and at the same time, the consumption in the society also has started to resume, although people opt for cheaper alternatives. A lot of Western groups are not available. So a lot of uh, items are um, in market niches are taken by Chinese competitors, primary like cars, cell phones, uh, industrial goods. Uh, that means that the overall wealth uh, and real disposable incomes of uh, the Russians will go down gradually. But for three, four years, the state has the capacity to uh, continue the war effort. And the military-industrial complex, as you rightfully say, uh, is one of the drivers of this uh, growth. Uh, it's working around the clock. Uh, we have problems with um, employment in Russia because there is a shortage of labor. Uh, the uh, military plans offer very high salaries, so a lot of people from the uh, normal civilian plans like car making factories are going there uh and uh, there's also uh, like going to war is attractive for some um so for that i think the resources are there the problem is that of course um these costs are not productive expenditures this is uh, investment into military tools uh, to kill people and to destroy and be destroyed once the war is 
over and no war is forever. There's underinvestment into kind of infrastructure, into uh, R&D not related to the military. And there is definitely detrimental human cost uh, of this war. But that's a long-term issue that Russia will face at some point, definitely. Just the last two, three questions. Uh, one, on this relationship with China, we did see that meeting between Mr. Putin and Mr. Xi Jinping early on in 2022, talk about that limitless partnership and friendship. Often we have heard, you know, critiques say that, of course, this is not a natural relationship. But has the Ukraine war led to a more cemented, solidified relationship today between Moscow and Beijing? I think that uh, the building blocks for a solid relationship between Russia and China predates the war. Russia and China share a large border that both sides, uh, back in the 80s when the Soviet Union was still there, decided that should be a border of peace because China has other security concerns and priorities. It has Taiwan, it has South China Sea, it has border dispute with India. And they decided that it's uh, better and more pragmatic to finally demarcate uh, the border with nuclear-armed Russia, solve, and back then Soviet Union, solve the issue, give part of the territory which China claims as historically Chinese in exchange for ability to reduce security investments along this border and divert resources elsewhere, not only for the military purpose, but also for the purpose of uh, back then uh, reform and opening up policy. And same was for the Soviet Union in Gorbachev era. Uh, That resulted in major border treaty and final demarcation uh, of the border between uh, 2006 and 2008. Uh, With that, I think that the border is stable and that's one of the kind of pillars that keeps this relationship afloat and robust. The other is uh, just the complementarity of the economic structures. Russia has abundance of natural resources but lacks capital and technology. China is exact uh, opposite. And uh, the annexation of Crimea and following sanctions have really pushed Russia to pivot to the east much more than it used to be historically oriented and find new markets in Asia Pacific, predominantly with China. And now in 2022, we see that sanctions have only cemented this dependency, both uh, role of China as export destination for Russian commodities, then also China as a critical source of imports. About 40% of Russian imports come from China now, and this uh, number is likely to grow. And then finally, as the country that provides the financial infrastructure to make um, trade and um, currency settlements possible, RMB is becoming the de facto currency of choice for Russia, and it uses Chinese yuan in uh, trade with other countries, including India. Uh, it uses that for... Um, um, accumulating wealth, be, be it on household level or on, on corporate level. And then finally, uh, China and Russia are two authoritarian powers uh, on the UN Security Council as permanent representatives, uh, permanent members. Uh, they share a lot of common outlook on how the world should look like. It should be a safe space for sovereign authoritarian countries like Russia and China and on many issues like Uh, R2P or governance on the internet, they look the same naturally. And I think that since the secret sauce is definitely animosity towards the United States of America or the collective West, where Russia is an entrenched 
uh, semi-direct conflict with the West uh, because Ukrainian uh, war effort is supported by the West for all of the right reasons. Uh, China sees its confrontation with the West as something structural, and that definitely brings uh, Putin's Russia and Xi Jinping's China into one boat. And you see, of course, those alignments also in several groupings now, including the BRICS uh, to the SCO. Uh, Mr. Xi Jinping also unlikely to come into Delhi for G20. Premier Li Keqiang is expected to arrive in New Delhi. Uh, you know, given that, of course, India and Russia have this very special strategic relations that still continues despite India's warming up to the US-led West. Uh, was it along expected lines that Mr. Putin would not come in for the G20 summit in person? even in New Delhi. That was my expectation. And I think that it's not a snub to the Indian chairmanship of G20, but it really reflects Mr. Putin's growing concerns about his physical safety. He is very unwilling to travel to destinations where first there are limitations uh, put uh, by his status as a fugitive because International Criminal Court has issued an arrest warrant uh, connected to the case of massive deportations of Ukrainian kids to Russia from occupied territories. Uh, this is why he couldn't travel to South Africa for the BRICS summit this year. I think that with India, there is no, when, in places where there is no 100% guarantee that the Russian Secret Service, the Federal Protection Bureau, can organize the security the way Russia wants and be fully in charge, then Putin wouldn't come. And I think that in India, that's the case because G20 involves logistics of multiple uh, global leaders, including uh, the U.S. President Joe Biden. We all know how hands-on the Secret Service can be when protecting the U.S. leadership. And uh, that's probably Putin didn't, Putin's security team didn't feel comfortable enough to come because he's obviously worried about assassination attempts, collection of data on him and stuff. So he decided to stay. And I think that's something logical to expect. But he's going to China end of October for the annual Belt and Road Summit or anniversary Belt and Road Summit. They usually happen every two years. And uh, Beijing is a place where uh, Putin's team feel can feel quite secure. Just a final question then, Alexander, because one of the mysteries that still remains is that on the day of the invasion of Ukraine, how did the then Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan land up in Moscow? Uh, you know, it was also one among the many reasons that led to becoming the trigger points for his eventual downfall and the political turmoil within Pakistan. What really happened there? I think it's a coincidence. I don't think that uh, anybody uh, outside of the U.S. and countries that really believed uh, the information of the U.S. intelligence uh, services uh, really knew about the date. Uh, we see examples where head of the German intelligence was in Kiev, uh, basically in the night of the invasion, had to be evacuated. Uh, so I think that it's absolutely normal and understandable that a leader of a country that's really far away, that doesn't really have a very good idea of what's uh, going on, happened to be in Moscow because he was not prepared. I wouldn't seek uh, any conspiracy here. Okay. Thank you so much, Alexander Gabue, for joining us here from Berlin on this podcast. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. That's all that I have time for on this edition of Beyond Nation and State. 
Don't forget to download the Suno India app and if you do tune into the conversation please do share your thoughts your feedback and your ratings on the app you can watch the video segment on YouTube at Smita Sharma journalist thanks for tuning in